0: I'm your host, Virgil Verix, and this is Conversations and Meditations. Uh, today is May 26, uh, 26 2018, and uh, let's get started with the show. Okay, first thing uh, I want to mention is that uh, the website for the show uh, and for uh, the blog is BackUp. So www.conversationsandmeditations.com, just the name of the show, and put a .com before uh, after it and www before it, and you should be uh, able to go on our website and uh, see some of our blog posts and some new announcements that I'm going to be uh, putting up there in the next week or so about the show and about a, a couple other things. So go there, and it's uh, also another place where you can actually submit user questions, uh, viewer questions, I mean, and uh, submit um, pretty much suggestions for topics suggestions uh, for things to write about to talk about on the show so feel free to go there and uh, give us your feedback as well love to hear your feedback love to hear your feedback and get the information necessary to make this show better for you guys the listeners so yes again uh, the website is www.conversationsandmeditations.com and uh, please go there and tell us what you think okay so today's show is kind of going to kind of be focused on a little bit of what we talked about last show when I had uh, two of my friends here, um, Sudo and uh, Misha, we talked about um, depression and anxiety and how that affects us and its overall, you know, effect on our emotions and our the way we deal with our, our lives and the way we go around and do things and how we carry ourselves. Um, But something I mentioned um, in that podcast that I'd like to kind of further go into and kind of unpack a little bit because I I made a quick mentioning of it and uh, I I feel like um, it would be advantageous to kind of go more into this and kind of give you my perspective and uh, see what you guys think. So last podcast I I mentioned that a big part of uh, what led to my, you know – bouts of depression and anxiety in the past and even sometimes now is uh, struggling with with nihilism and struggling with resentment. And these two topics that I mentioned last time, I quickly gave definitions. I quickly went over um, some of the aspects of nihilism, some of the aspects of uh, resentment. I gave a few quotes and I'm, today I kind of want to go over those things I mentioned and things I said and kind of give my interpretation a little further and uh, see see how this can uh, kind of make a little bit more sense towards what I was mentioning when I was talking about. So you know, the first thing we got to do obviously is uh, define nihilism and what do I mean by it and uh, all this stuff. So I'm I'm kind of going to stick with a few people here: uh, Nietzsche, Viktor Frankl, and uh, Donald Crosby. They seem to have. Um, Ernst Becker has some great definitions as well. And great points on nihilism. And I'll, I'll try to incorporate a little bit of all their stuff here today and kind of uh, break it down and tell you what I think. But Nietzsche, in uh, one of, in, in the Will of Power, he said, uh, "What does nihilism mean? The highest values devaluate themselves. The aim is lacking. Why finds no answer." You know, and he continues to say in the Will of Power that um, nihilism is the radical repudiation of values, meaning, and desirability. Um, so that that's kind of a basic understanding of how nietzsche viewed it and his his interpretation of it and obviously nietzsche is most like yeah probably mostly the the most uh quoted and uh, studied person on nihilism because he has a lot of great uh, great things and great points on nihilism in a lot of his writings so he's uh, obviously one of the top people who people will study for nihilism and in looking into this topic um victor frankl said that um Nihilism as it is experienced, the actual existential sense of meaningless and futility of life is not the product of an intellectual theory. So this kind of goes into Frankel's work, which is a psychotherapist, and some of what he's saying is that, you know, the product of intellectual theory, feeling – these feelings, the feeling of meaningless, meaninglessness and no purpose and the futility of life, these things are not necessarily um, – Product of the mind, uh, in the sense of an intellectual uh, exercise, more so of an emotional um, response. But I, I said this last podcast, and I think this is a, a really good way of understanding what I mean by nihilism. And I'm going to be focusing on a specific form for the rest of the show. But um, in the Specter of the Absurd by Donald Crosby, he he kind of gave a really good. Uh, it's mostly about nihilism and uh, the absurd. You know, the absurd movement and absurdity and absurdism and all this other stuff. But um, he said that moral nihilism denies a sense of moral obligation, the objectivity of moral principles or the moral viewpoint. Uh, epistemological nihilism denies that there can be anything like truths or meaning not strictly confined within or wholly relative to a single individual group or cons- conceptual schema. Cosmic nihilism disavows intelligibility or value in nature, seeing it as indifferent or hostile to the fundamental uh, human concerns. Existential uh, nihilism negates the meaning of life. Uh, but as you can see, the existential nihilism kind of is all-encompassing and kind of puts the other three within its, uh, within its umbrella. So I'm going to be focusing on existential nihilism for brevity's sake and also because um, – I think that's where most people are are suffering are suffering from and uh so just a quick thing on the other types of nihilism you know moral nihilism the deny the denying of objective moral moral principles uh the, the moral viewpoint the you know uh, moral obligations um when when people tend to have this type of viewpoint on on a certain things to me, it's very confusing. At least now, it's super confusing because if there's no objectivity to moral principles, then right and wrong is just relative, right? Uh, these things are not—they're not um, they're, they're negotiable. Like, for instance, the, the, the things that uh, philosophers talk about when it comes to morality: um, stealing, murdering. You know, these two—these are two very important topics that are brought up in philosophy. And the fact that somebody can think that. There is no objectivity that you know killing is bad all you know murdering is bad all the time. Um, you know premeditated murdering is bad all the time. Stealing uh, for the sake of for the sake of stealing and to get rich and to do all these things is uh, is bad. But you know there's obviously there's a lot of gray area you know self-defense of course that's that's definitely a, a gray area not considered murder um, and the same thing for for stealing to feed yourself to eat. And you know, if you're stealing an apple to eat, you know you're not necessarily committing a moral a moral crime in my in my opinion, and there needs to be uh some type of uh, system in place to help prevent those circumstances um you know epistemological nihilism talks about that there's no such thing as truths you know meeting is not relative to to groups or individuals so this this is just um this leads to people being uh, – in my estimation, leads to people not uh, believing anything, right? And this can lead to uh, people who are fixated on um, conspiracy theories because I used to be uh, fixated on conspiracy theories back a while ago and one thing that I noticed at least looking back at my, at my mindset was – was I was very relativistic I, I you know what is true you know we don't know what's true you know they they quote unquote they are hiding the truth so you know this this type of epistemological nihilism you know leads to um, negation of facts uh, and it also leads to you being more closed-minded and not not having the ability to go in there and listen to somebody and actually say well i'm going to go into this conversation with the hope that if the person is good enough and their arguments are good enough, I might be able to change my mind. So that – and the reason for that is because nothing is true. So you can't be convinced. It's just – everything is just uh, – you know, uh, is, talking about this stuff can be very uh, um, interesting because it, it forces you to, to look at things in such a weird and not standard way. That it really forces you to um have some total total you know brain farts just like thinking about how can things not be true, so uh that's that, but then cosmic nihilism talks about you know there's no value in nature, there's no beautiful, there's no beauty in nature, and you know nature is hostile, and it 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 just you know it hurts humans, and the, you know the best thing would be that if humans were never you know born on this earth and you have that type of stuff and that that you know the cosmic nihilism can um can cause kind of a very interesting thing you know when you deny uh the value in nature you know you can become a horrible type of person that just totally destroys the environment and and totally uh, is polluting and if you were in charge of a business you'd totally be fine um you know, p- uh, p- throwing throwing your your waste in the water and doing all these things. So, these these worldviews, and that's what was my point in the last podcast. You know, having a your worldview really can dictate a lot of your personality, and it can really you know, in con, you know in combination with your personality and um, your your worldview, that leads directly towards your actions in your life, right? So, if you're gonna have any any of these types of of these worldview, whether it's moral nihilism, epistemological nihilism, uh, cosmic nihilism, or a combination of all those, um, you're not going to have a very, um, you know, enjoyable experience. At least this is from my personal uh, uh, personal point of view and things that I've went through. You know, but the, the one I the one I uh, want to focus on really, and I, I kind of give. Little spend a little too much time on the other ones, but um, the one I wanted to focus on is existential nihilism, and that just negates the meaning of life altogether, the meaning of this whole experience. Now, something that I I have trouble with, at least today, and I'm happy I have trouble with this, is that um, this this point of view is such a self fulfilling prophecy. It is such a it is such a trap. So, you know, I call these things like mental cognitive traps, you know, like emotional traps, where, you know, if you have a specific point of view to, you know, worldview, point of view on the, on the world and how this all works and everything, um, you can totally lose yourself, completely lose yourself and completely lose everything that you once stood for. So, meaning is, meaning is very important. You know, we talk about meaning, and we understand we understand what meaning is, but do we really? Um, you know, uh, to the ancients, to the Greeks, um, meaning was was more than just what we we call it today. It's it's it was uh, purpose, right? It was what is your purpose, in a way, but also. Meaning also had a connection to one of the topics I brought up in the second episode, eudaimonia, which means human flourishing. So having meaning in your life, having pur- having a purpose in your life, right? So it encompasses two things: having a purpose and then human flourishing. at least that's the way I would take it. So you know, y- you have people, ancient Greek and, and nihilism has been around forever. Right. I mean, people think nihilism started with Nietzsche or started in, you know, in Europe in the 18th or 16th century, 17th century. But no, no, this goes back long, long time ago. I mean one of the first things we can look at to talk about nihilism is you know, the ancient Greeks. An ancient Greek poet Theogenes uh, who lived in the 6th century BC made the statement that the best for man were not to have been born and not to have seen the light of the sun. But if once born, the second best for him is to pass through the gates of death as speedily as may be. So you could see that this type of feeling towards life, this type of feelings towards our existence – has been around for a long time, and it's it's a, it starts with pessimism. I mean, Nietzsche mentioned that nihilism begins with the feelings of pessimism, and that pessimism towards the meaning of life can you know can lead towards uh, complete nihilism towards uh, towards the meaning of life. Um, but Nietzsche mentioned that pessimism is a preliminary form of nihilism. You know, no matter how much suffering or pain or hardship we have in our life, nihilism will not arise. As long as one has a conviction that there is a meaning or purpose to life. So you can be a pessimistic person, but as long as you, you can go through a lot of stuff, you can have a lot of pain, suffering, hardship, um, in your life. But nihilism necessarily won't come into the, come into effect. Um, and something that, you know, we in Western civilization and all civilizations at that have been, you know, dealing with is, uh, something called the two world theory. Um, So the two-world theories have dominated thought throughout thousands of years. I mean from, from the beginning of time in a lot of ways and uh, this provided a lot of meaning for a lot of people. So what do I mean by a two-world theory? So a two-world theory is kind of the way uh, people, cultures, individuals look at the world, look at existence itself. So for people like um, – so in the West for instance – a two world theories that have gone throughout time, and I'm going to kind of give you a few of them. You know, Plato, his world of forms. You know, the idea that truth and acceptance and understanding can only be found in another world, and for Plato, is this world of forms. For Descartes, it was a spirit world where you would get this understanding, and you would find this meaning and this uh, this union of, of of love and understanding and meaning it would all come together. Um, for Immanuel Kant, it was a noumena. You know, the Numenum world. Um, But the most important and the most uh, influential two world theory throughout the world, um, at least in the Western world uh, more so, is uh, Christianity's theory of heaven. That's a two world theory. So, you know, Christian heaven in particular has been obviously the most prominent theory for the last 2,000 years in the West. And the thing is, the Christian teaching gave individuals the conviction that their lives no matter how terrible, how difficult, uh, were like their their life was was to, was was for something. It was going towards a goal. There was a purpose to this earthly existence, and there was a purpose. The purpose was to live according to God's will and to attain, you know, uh, upon your death attain, attain uh, entrancehip into the kingdom of heaven. You know, this story is very powerful. It's a very powerful um, um, antidote uh, against nihilism. And it provides people, it provides individuals, with a with a desired purpose to find meaning in their life, with a desired purpose to keep on going, to keep pushing. Um, it ensures that the believers, you know, they will be guaranteed entry into a, a to a beautiful, joyful, blissful, blissful reality upon their death. Now, I think this has been, uh, in my opinion, um, uh, the most um potent and um long-lived two-world theory that we've had in the west and uh, in the world um but some 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 qu- some quotes on that or not some quotes some um comments on that um the first thing about two-world theories that i uh that i say so i'm all about reality right i'm as i said earlier i'm an atheist and um I, I try to have a scientific point of view towards the world and towards reality, but you know something Nietzsche said was that having a scientific, having looking at the world scientifically is probably the dumbest thing you can do, because it it might tell you the truth in the sense of the reality of the world, but it totally removes meaning from everything. So this is one of the this is another trap, you know, where where a lot of people, especially atheists like myself, can get into, where you just You know, totally worship the sciences, worship uh, rationality, which I do, and uh, you totally forget that you know science truth is very important. I mean, truth is one of the most important things in my life. Um, But you know, as I got as I get older and as I start to understand things better, um, another very important thing in my life is is finding meaning. And I think for most people, and Ernest Becker, he said that you know, men. Don't food does not really uh, satiate men. It's meaning really that 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 satisfies people and satisfies their their existence and satisfies their life. Um, so you know this this is a is a hard thing to to get past, especially for a person like myself, because a two world theory easily gives you a a meaning towards the struggle in your life and as I mentioned in the last podcast, you know, the way I look at life, life, a lot of life, not all of life but big parts of life is our suffering and uh, the other the other part of it is, is malevolence. You know, there's a lot of evil in the world and a lot of evil in our lives but something we have to understand and kind of take, you know, that's, that's a fact, right? There is suffering in the world and in my life whether it's my leg hurting or whether it's People across the world who are in a war zone, there is suffering in the world and there is also evil in the world, whether it's through uh, my own personal experience with the individual, uh, individuals that I know that are abusive or verbally, physically, mentally, um, whether they are um, trying to totally ruin somebody's reputation. I mean that's something we see in our lives every day as little you know, pieces of evil. But then you look at the wider spectrum and you see a lot of evil in the world like in these war zones. You know, there's and there's suffering and tragedy all, I mean, there's violence, suffering and tragedy all over the world and it causes people to become nihilistic. And a lot of the time these two world theories can really be the antidote against this type of stuff because People will look at the world, look at things that are happening, and then go on and say, oh, it's terrible, this is bad, and they'll take on the- uh, Theogenesis' position. That I'd be better if humanity never existed on this earth. But that is such a defeatist, pessimistic argument that, um, doesn't, uh, doesn't take into account all the wonderful things that have, we have done as, as a society, as a humanity, throughout the years, throughout the generations, and that the stuff we're still continuing to build upon today. So I think, you know, like Nietzsche said, you have to be a pessimist in order to get to the point to where you're, um, you're getting right on the edge of nihilism, preliminary form of nihilism, he, he called it. But again, he, he said that it doesn't mean that if you are going through stuff and you have a lot of pain, suffering, hardship in your life, it doesn't mean you become nihilistic. Um, and Nietzsche said, and this is where Nietzsche's phrase, God is dead, comes from you know and cuz a lot of people read nietzsche and they don't really understand what he mean, what he meant by god is dead so nietzsche used the phrase god is dead to symbolize the loss of faith in the two world theory of christianity in the world and this was done throughout the enlightenment and through the age uh, you know the age of enlightenment and the renaissance where the two world theory started to dissipate further and further throughout history so in, you know he understood he understood that this loss of faith would create a crisis in regarding the meaning of, in regards to the meaning of life, and he thought that this was inevitable. Um, and, um, and like I said, you know Nietzsche Nietzsche mentioned that um, <laughs> in, uh, about the scientific having a scientific interpretation of the world, and in the gay science he 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 reiterates the idea that science and meanings of life go hand in hand. And as somebody who is a science lover and a almost a science worshipper. He, reading this um, not too long ago uh, really struck me and hit me hard and had to make me rethink a lot of things and I had to l- l- check my assumptions and kind of um, see what he meant. But you know, he said uh, – this is a direct quote from the Gay Science. A scientific interpretation of the world, as you understand, might therefore still be one of the most stupid of all possible interpretations of the world, meaning that would be one of the poorest in meaning. Uh, this though is intended for ears and consciousness – Uh, of our mechanist uh, who nowadays, nowadays, like the past, of philosophers insist on mechanics as the doctrine of the first and last laws on which all existence must be based on the ground floor. But an essentially mechanical world would be an essentially meaningless world, assuming that one estimated the value of a piece of music according to how much of it could be counted, calculated, expressed in formulas. How absurd... Uh, such a scientific estimation of music would be uh, what would have uh, one have comprehended understood, grasped of it grasped grasped of it nothing really, nothing of what is music uh of what is music in it, so he kind of really tears apart um, the the science having a pure scientific interpretation of the world, so obviously um. <laughs> when you hear music and it makes you think of a time and it makes you have all these things yeah that's that's not you're not looking at it scientifically you're looking at it emotionally and um that's something he was trying to point at and uh and this is kind of a repudiation against a lot of the science and enlightenment thinkers that were uh popping around his time and a uh, little before his time in the um, renaissance so this this is pretty clear that um that when we when we get into you know this type of type of conversation that with others about nihilism about meaning we have to be careful not to not to put so much doubt and so much uh pessimism in the air that people will just end up becoming pessimistic and nihilistic eventually and that's kind of the struggle that i had you know preparing for this show trying to find meaning in how i'm going to talk about this and whether or not uh, i can actually get get what i wanted to say out with an actual important you know points you know, um but I really, like I said, you know, I'm going to mention Nietzsche a lot today because I think he is the best person to look at. Um, but in the will of power, he says, "What I relate is the history of the next two centuries. and this was in the 1800s, and he was talking about um, what's going to be happening in the 1900 in the, in the 1900s and in the 2000s. He said, "I describe what is coming." what can no longer come differently the advent of nihilism for some time now our whole european culture has been moving towards a, ca- a towards a catastrophe with a tortured tension that is growing from a de- from decade to decade relentlessly violently headlong like a river that wants to reach out reach the end that no longer reflects that is afraid to reflect so he he had obviously he had his own views of nihilism and he he obviously felt that um this this stuff would be the would be one of the biggest and major threats towards our civilization as we know it and i would i would tend to agree with him on that i mean from from the people i know and the experiences that i've heard them tell me and the experiences that i've had with anxiety with depression is that you know ultimately most of the people in that camp in that group tend to have this type of outlook, tend to have this type of outlook that life is meaningful or meaningless, excuse me, that life is meaningless. There's no meaning to it. And, you know, the antidote to all this stuff, the antidote to life is suffering, the antidote to life that there's a lot of malevolence in the world. The antidote to all this stuff is meaning. And, you know, we have to as individuals, we can't do this as necessarily as groups. You know, this is where, you Individualism is, you know, Nietzsche was a, was a pretty staunch individualist in a lot of ways, but, you know, this is where individualism comes into full effect for the betterment of your character. You know, um, I really believe that if you look at this particular topic individually, you'll have a better chance and probably a higher rate of success in re- relieving yourself from this type of um, torment because it is torment. It's, it's, it's just torment to yourself and this will lead to a lot of terrible things and one of the things that nihilism can lead to you know is uh, this resentment this total utter resentment and resentment comes in many shapes and forms but uh the resentment that that follows nihilism or that's intertwined and married with nihilism is um some of the most vitriolic and dangerous things you can possibly see um, in the entire world. So, you know, resentment leads to a lot of horrible things. Resentment leads to school shootings. Resentment leads to um, p- treating people that you care about negatively because you, you, they might have done something to you or said something to you in the past, and you wanted to, you know, win. You wanted to uh, get revenge. Um, resentment can lead to a total loss of values, and it could lead, and it's interesting, you know, nihilism can lead to resentment, but resentment can also lead to nihilism. Um, both are hand in hand. I mean, you can have a nihilist, you can have nihilistic thoughts about the world, about society, about humanity, and then come to a conclusion that is ultimately horrifying. So, um, I don't recommend anybody to do this. But you know, some of the things the column, I mean, the Columbine shooters, and you know, with the school shootings going around in this country so often and so frequent, I feel like this is something that should be said. Um, the Columbine shooters—you can go online, and uh, they actually posted their journals after they uh, committed their atrocity. Now, I like I said, I don't recommend reading it, but I did, and um, something something that I took from it was everything in there was this blame the world resentment blame society blame other people for my problems but it took a darker it took a darker tone uh, and it got to the place where i'm just blaming god for creating us you know that's where he went to so you could see that this you could see that it it his resentment and nihilism were there And taken to an extreme form with mental health issues and rage issues, and you get uh, two people who think the same way, encouraging each other. You get something like Columbine. This is where, and this is why I think nihilism is so dangerous. This is why I think you know people need to be aware for when they talk to others and they say things like, "Man, you know, nothing, nothing really has any meaning." First thing, if somebody tells you that they're depressed, okay. If somebody ever says. Man, there's no meaning in life. This life, there's nothing, nothing important going on, I and mean, there's nothing, nothing. Actually, this life is uh, is inconsequential. If somebody says this mean obviously something is going on, and something is not right. Um, and some people go through this um, when they become when they lose when they lose their religion, um, and they lose their faith. They go through this nihilistic period where nothing matters and there are relativists and moral relativists and, uh, ethical, uh, ethically questionable people at that point. Um, some people go through bouts of nihilism when people they love, you know, pass away. Some people go through nihilism when they lose their job or or lose an opportunity and they become nihilistic towards structures and towards society and towards the whole idea of Working and the whole idea of capitalism and all these other things, they just become totally nihil- nihilistic and resentful. And, um, you know, but resentment, like I said last, in the last podcast, resentment is, is, is a very strong emotion and a very strong thing. And, you know, Nietzsche's concept, and he, he used his concept from the French, uh, you know, his, his concept was called, uh, which is French for resentment. It's close to English, right? Um, but it's more curdled and bitter. Um, there's more bitterness to it. It's seething. It's 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 toxic, bottled up and poisoned, and it's there for a long time. And that's resentiment. You know, Nietzsche used resentmentum in the context of developing. You know, his account, uh, his famous account, really of of the master-slave morality and beyond good and evil, and then in genealogy of morals later on. Um, and you know, master morality is for the people that love. You know, master morality is the people who are. Life-loving, strong, ambitious—it's uh, the morality of the people who are who are vigorous and who are confident. Um, it's the morality of people who love adventure, you know, and uh, who delight in the creativity of of the world and themselves and their own sense of purposefulness and assertiveness in the world. And that's that's the master morality according to Nietzsche. Slave morality is the morality of the weak, you know, the humble. People who feel victimized and afraid to venture forth into the world. Um, weaklings who are chronically passive mostly because they're afraid of the strong, right? Um, and this is what Nietzsche pointed out. This is not exactly what I believe or what, I, what I'm saying. So hear me out. Um, you know, and he said like, as a result of the weak feeling of, – of the weak feeling frustrated, they can't really get out of – out of what they want of life, they can't find meaning. They can't find a purpose. They can't find the things that will make them flourish. They cannot find the tools that will lead them towards either demea So, you know, they become envious of the strong. They secretly start to hate them, and they also secretly start to hate themselves for being so cowardly and weak. Well, obviously, they hate the strongest <laughs> strong too. Don't get that wrong. Um, but you know, nobody can live life forever thinking he, uh, he or she is hateful or scornful or, or mean or any of this stuff. So the people who quote unquote are weak use or create an irrationalization that tells them that they are good and moral because they are humble and passive and weak. You know, they start saying things like patience is a virtue, um, humility is a virtue, obedience is a virtue. Being on the side of the weak and downtrodden is a virtue, and of course, you know the opposite of those things are evil. It's an anathema to, to humanity. They believe, you know, and these things are aggressiveness is evil. You know, p- being prideful, um, being independent, and not thinking about the group—that's also evil. Um, but being, you know, physically successful, being materialistic materially successful, those things are also deemed to be a quote-unquote evil or um, a no-no by the people who are in the slave morality. But of course, you know, it's a racialization and people who are smart, who are weak uh, are never quite going to convince themselves out of it, right? They're never going to be able to convince themselves that, yeah, I'm weak and I'm passive and I, I have no confidence in myself. Therefore, you know what? I'm moral. I'm good because humility is great and obedience is good and all this stuff if, if they're actually smart, how hard of a time will they have trying to convince themselves they won't be able to and that's and that will do damage inside uh, emotionally um, it'll cause them to be uh to be even more weak and even more helpless, and the strong will be laughing and that will do damage inside because the people they hate you know they they are now realizing this. So this is even more of a, a damnation for, for the people on the other side and it will do a lot of damage uh, emotionally and the strong and the rich will carry on getting stronger and richer and enjoying life and and seeing these, these people do that for the people who are you know, weak will cause them to have uh, feelings of – hate and self-loathing envy of his enemies. And this will do a lot of damage inside. You know, and like I said, the weak, the the person who's weak will, will eventually start feeling a combination of self-loathing and envy of his enemies. And, you know, he, he's in a need to lash out. He'll, he'll feel the urge to hurt in any way he can, you know, his enemy, who is the strong, who is the, the, the person of strong will and strong character. But, you know, most people can't risk physical confrontations, so most people go through, um, you know, using their words. And Nietzsche argued that weaklings become extremely clever with their words and insults. <laughs> um, you know, in our time, in our world, the Enlightenment created, you know, the world created this world created by the Enlightenment. Is strong is active is life living it's it's exuberant you know in, in past centuries you know um people who were against the enlightenment they thought that you know the woe would come to the industrialists and to the scientists and the people going for progress and you know bless you know damn be the rich and the the people who are working hard towards um things. Trying to get themselves to the next level and blessed would be the poor. But, you know, this hasn't really happened. You know, this hope has kind of been eliminated from from, from the conversation. Capitalism right now seems to be the biggest lifter, the biggest uh, success in terms of lifting people up out of poverty. I know it sounds very counterintuitive and very, um, you know, contrary to what a lot of people hear and and believe. But um, over the last 20 years, um, over – excuse me, I think 20 to 30 years, a billion people have been lifted out of poverty. Why? It's not because of foreign aid. It's not because of us doing something to make those areas in the world better necessarily. A lot of the reason why a lot of these people have now left, you know, permanent poverty and are now going towards, you know, a middle class life is because their economy is liberalized. Is because they were able to achieve something. So the idea that a lot of these people had in the past that, you know, um, damn be the rich and blessed would be the poor. I mean, ironically, the whole world is getting richer. And when I say the whole world, I know a lot of people will hear this and will say, well, you know, person in X area of the world is having a hard time and these people are are starving. Yes, I'm not saying it's perfect. Yes, I'm not saying it's great. But what I'm what I'm saying is is things are getting better. And, you know, it's completely contrary to the idea that the strong and that the life living in the Confident and the people who are, you know, entrepreneurial spirit and you know all this stuff that they would eventually be the people losing, and that the the weak and the um, poor would be the ones um, winning on top. I mean, this is the you know this is a typical communist Marxist idea that you know the rich will be overthrown and the proletariat will take over. That didn't happen in the twentieth century and didn't happen in the twenty first. Has not happened so far in the twenty first century. Um, But, you know, like Dostoevsky's underground man, it's easy to see that the most intelligent um, people in that camp would just hate the facts, you know, would just hate the facts that, you know, I made a choice in my life, whether it's a choice ideologically, whether it's a choice um, emotionally, you know, I made a choice and I lost and – if they, if somebody knows that the choice, you know, that the historical choice they made made them a loser, then they will hate the fact. They will hate that fact, and they will hate the fact that the winners won, and they will hate themselves for having picked the losing side. You know, hate as a chronic condition leads to an urge to destroy, and a lot of the people, including myself, when I was nihilistic and I had a lot of resent, very similar to a lot of this resent Nietzsche talked about. Um, the resentment that I had was very, very deep and um, it, on, the, on the surface level, you know, I was a Marxist at the time on the surface level, my resentment was towards um, the Burgessy and towards um, the capitalist class and as I got older and kind of left that type of thinking behind, um, my resentment towards people started to decrease so finding or listening to listening to ideologies or reading ideologies that put us against them this group against that group you know um rich versus poor black versus white any of these identity politics um types of uh movements tend to push people apart or pull people apart really and tends to polarize groups and that's what you kind of saw in Nazi Germany was this continuing polarization um, and you know and this victimhood mentality that they had. oh, we've been victimized by the rest of Europe, and we can't do this, we can't do that. And what happened? They found a guy to they found Germany found a person to put all their hate and resentment into. he channeled it. And you got some of the worst atrocities of all mankind happening. Now I'm not saying, you know, resentment and nihilism will always lead to the Holocaust or to the gulag camps in, in Soviet Union. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is is that this is the first steps towards a tyranny. The first steps toward a tyranny is letting your resentment, letting your hatred, letting your carelessness for meaning itself and life itself um dissipate that will that will cause you to have you know feelings and uh, feelings and and desires to pull down the system destroy it. you know you hear people screw the system pull down the system destroy the system you know a lot of my anarchist friends and um it's it's this urge to destroy that's what it is it's an urge to destroy and not an urge to work things out, not an urge to talk things out, not an urge to conserve, not an urge to uh, liberate and try to understand where we can make, uh, you know, changes necessary, make things, you know, make the changes that are necessary in order to make our existence a much more understanding and better experience, you know, but um, this is this is a, a big problem that I faced. And I think a lot of people are actually facing this issue and facing this problem, and I honestly think that if we don't take this concept and topic seriously, it it will lead to degeneration within ourselves, right? If we get you know caught by the nihilist virus, um, it'll also lead to degeneration with our with our with our families and our friends and the people we love. It'll also Once those two things happen, when you start to, you know, pull, you know, separate in a negative way because of these things, you know, these types of this type of mentality, the mentality that um, life is meaningless and that um, there's no there's no value in, in anything. Uh, this pushes people away, and it pushes people away. Primarily because they never thought about it, and now you're thinking about it and it's causing them you know some cognitive dissonance or anxiety, so first thing I can say is if you're going through a bout of nihilism uh you have to see what type of nihilism you're struggling with, right I mentioned the four types of nihilism you have to see where it's where where it's at where you're at you know and if if you have if you have the all encompassing existential nihilism nihilism in your life, which you know negates the actual meaning versus you know truth versus moral objectivity, you have to start taking the necessary steps to fix that so some of the some of the steps can be multifold, but um some of the things that I did was to stop first. I would have to – I told myself, like, well, today I'm going to have to justify my existence. What does that mean? What does that mean? Justify your existence. okay? To me, that meant do something good every single day and you will start seeing results. So for me personally, it was if I can make more people smile – then frown by the end of the day that I'm doing something right. That's very simple. It's very easy. It's not hard to do that (laughs) if you actually make that your goal. So this is one little thing. So what does that teach you? You might say, well, this is a meaningless thing. (laughs) Obviously, you would say it's a meaningless thing if you're suffering denialism. But um, what I can say about what that did for me was – Number one it it forced me to to look at myself and see how unpleasant I actually am or was. <laughs> it forced me to look at my my personality, it forced me to look at the way I dealt with people. It also forced me to dealt forced me to look at the way I dealt with myself and say, well, I'm coming off, you know, maybe a little negative, a little angry, a little depressed, a little nihilistic. I sound very cynical. You know, you can kind of get a good idea when you start to examine your your behaviors and you can kind of get a good idea of how this is affecting your life or this you know the, how you, how your worldview is affecting your life because sometimes your worldview doesn't affect your personality and you can have a worldview and still you know it might be a negative worldview but you can still go out like Nietzsche said you can still be you can be a pessimistic person and still have meaning in life and do things and have a family and love them and love yourself you can you can still do that so I'm not talking about pessimism now. I'm talking about deep, deep nihilism. So that's so you have to find little things that you can do to make the world around you a little bit better. Now, why is it important to make the world around you a little bit better? Well, for one thing, if everybody is better off in terms of emotionally, you know, they're not feeling negative or anything like that, then your interactions with them, have a way 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 higher likelihood of being more positive and being and and you you'd find some value from that um, so that's that's one little thing one little example that I ended up doing you know another little example that I can uh kind of bring to bear is you know looking and this is and I, I mentioned this last time you know we talking about antidotes to nihilism nihilism comes from the realization that life is suffering and evil, and that that's it, right? That's what life is. That's what a big part of nihilism comes into effect. And you know, the difference between nihilism and, and pessimism is the realization that all of this is meaningless. So this this is not going to get easier for people who are suffering with this. It's only going to get harder, and the more and more you fight against it, the more and more it'll fight against you. So the things you you actively need to do is to always, 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 when you start getting these type of feelings, step back, kind of third person it, you know, step back out of your head for a minute and say, well, let's break this down logically. Is life really meaningless? Am I acting like life is meaningless? Because you might hear people say, oh, life is meaningless and this and that. And they might sound like a nihilist or they want to sound like a nihilist. but then. You see them with their children, you see them at work, you see them with friends and family, they're not acting like their life is meaningless, they're acting like their life is full of meaning. Now, a lot of people don't realize the blessings and the and the the, the great things in their lives. So another thing that can lead to nihilism is not being appreciative, not being appreciative for what you have rather than for what you don't have. So that's another step. You have to... So, First is like do a little thing that can make the world a little bit better. And I tell you right now, like the like like my little uh, experiment back in the day, if I can make more people smile than frown today, I've done something right. What does that do? It makes people feel better and makes them better. But what does it do to me? It makes me understand that, wow, I can add value to people's lives. I can actually make people feel uncomfortable and feel you know like they're having a good time. So that will start putting, you know that's a little seed to uh, to start the tree of hope, right because the tree of hope is will always be there you just have to you just have to plant the seed and water it, and the watering it is doing these different thought experiments, doing these different things to get yourself to the next level of understanding to the next level of meaning to the next level of, you know of 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 getting negati- negativity and nihilism away and you know finally the, my final point on one of the antidotes to nihilism is, you know, you have to be able to find meaning. Yeah, I mean, and you have to find meaning. You, you really do. Humanity needs meaning. That is something we talked about in the last podcast. That everybody needs it. If we don't have it, people end up being miserable. So we have to find a way to to find that. So. We, we can we – can, Aristotle talked about having a life, whether it's in politics, whether it's in philosophy, whether it's in work. Um, you know These are the you know types of meaningful life you can get, the type of life that leads to human flourishing. Um, but something that I learned and I mentioned briefly was the Stoics. So quickly – and I'm going to have a whole show on Stoicism. Don't worry about it and I'll, I'll break it down fully so you guys will get a better understanding of what I'm trying to say. Some of the things that I I've looked at over the years, and something that helped me kind of leave and get rid of my stoicism, was um, their their ability to take what's going on in your world and break it down from in my control, not in my control, and it's a total perspective shifter. I mean, read read Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, read Epictetus's uh, Enchiridion, the Handbook. Read Seneca's On the Shortness of Life. These books will totally change your perspective. I mean, a quote by Marcus Rose that I love, and this shows you something. If you are p- pained by any external thing, it's not the thing that disturbs you, but your own judgment about it. And it's in your power to wipe this judgment out now. So Stoicism is Stoicism's center, center, central point is to relieve yourself from negative emotions, to relieve yourself from. From negative, um, negative feelings. This is why cognitive behavioral therapy and psychology and even logotherapy is heavily based on stoicism and the philosophy and teachings by these people. But the idea that you can separate what's in your control and what's not in your control, this will reduce your anxiety level. This will reduce your negative feelings about things. But it'll also help you find meaning because for the things you know For the things that you have absolute control of and you know you have control of, that is what you should be focusing on as you're meeting. So I have absolute control over over, over my health in the sense of I have an absolute control over my body, my weight, all this stuff. I can use my power, my willpower to get me to the next level. But like I said, we have to fight nihilism. We have to fight resentment every single day, whether it's in ourselves, our friends, our families, our loved ones. We have to fight it because if we don't fight it, it will lead to suffering. It will lead to malevolence. You know, it's caused by it and it'll also lead to it. And we have to make sure that we can find a antidote to this. And I think finding meaning in your life, understanding the difference between what, you're, what, what you have in your power and what's not in your power and understanding that. You can do little things to make the world a better place. You not have to do big things. I think these three things are a great antidote to nihilism and the things that we face today as a society in the modern world. Thank you again and have a wonderful day. Take care.